in Colossians chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 11 through 15. And then in chapter 3, we'll read verses 1 through 4. Paul is writing and he says, In Him, that is Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision not made by hand in the putting off of the body of sins of the flesh and the circumcision of the Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you also were raised with Him through the faith of the working of God, who raised Him from among the dead. And you, being dead in the offenses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all the offenses, having wiped away the handwriting of the decrees against us, which was contrary to us. He has also taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having stripped the rulers and the authorities, He made a show of them openly, having led them in triumph in it. If, therefore, you were raised with the Christ, seek the things above, where the Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Fix your mind on the things above, not on the earth, for you died and your life has been hidden with the Christ in God. When the Christ, who is our life, is manifested you shall also be manifested with Him in glory. Let's pray. God, whose Son Jesus is the Good Shepherd of Your people, grant that when we hear His voice, we may know Him who calls us each by name and follow where He leads who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Last week we celebrated a baptism. And it's it's telling in the history of the Christian faith, in the history of the church, but also in the New Testament, the connection that we find between resurrection and baptism. In fact, in the early church, baptisms happened on Easter, happened on the weekend of Easter. Baptism is that symbol and sign of new life, of covenant that has been entered into with God. It's a celebration of new birth of what Paul called new creation, being found in Christ, born again into Him as we surrender our lives to His Lordship, as we give ourselves to Him in covenant love, in response to His grace and His mercy to us who has called us. But the Scriptures speak not just of a new creation that we have become in Christ, but they speak of a new life that has been given to us. And that new life is also connected to the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says here, if in baptism you have been buried with Christ, you've also been raised up to new life with Him. And that new life is to be developed and nurtured. It is a walk that we've been called to in Christ. It is about the living out of our faith in Jesus. 
And it's interesting that God in His good pleasure has given to His church not just baptism, not just that holy sacrament where, wherein we celebrate new creation in Jesus, but He's given to us also communion. Something that Jesus said we were to do as often as we would in remembrance of Him. Something that Paul said, every time we eat of that bread and drink of that cup, we proclaim the Lord's death till He comes again. And that meal sustains us, reminds us, carries us on from meal to meal. Everyone loves a newborn baby. I know mine gets passed around every Sunday. And they always have. And, you know, every new baby that comes into this church gets passed around. I think Megan was commenting that uh, her, her Caden was not newborn when they first came, but the first Sunday she was passed around. We all love babies, we love children, we love new life, we love seeing new life among us. Everyone loves a newborn baby. But every newborn baby is to be nurtured in growth and maturity. Topher has uh, started his speaking, and so it used to be ma 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 ma, but now it's ba ba ba. And I don't know what he's trying to say about ba ba. I keep trying to correct him and say da da, but he's not getting that yet. But it's it's the cutest thing when a little baby starts trying to talk, and they're copying sounds that they hear, and they're mocking their siblings, and um, that's an exciting thing. But we don't like that, and we don't expect that in a six-year-old. We expect a six-year-old to have picked up some language and to not speak to us in baby talk. In fact, uh, a, a couple of years ago, we eliminated a television show in our house, Max and Ruby, because Aiden was always talking like Max, and Max wouldn't talk like a child, he would talk like a baby. And so Aiden would say, uh, Mama, I'm hungry. And so we'd say, what's, what's this? Your, your grammar is receding. And so we, uh, we finally figured out the source of it, and we said, if you keep talking like that, we're going to eliminate that television show, because we know that's where you're getting it. And it's gone. It hasn't been watched in a while, uh, a couple of years. We expect newborn babies to grow up, to mature. Just as Christ expects those who have become new creations in Him to grow up and to mature and to, to develop that new life that they found in Him. And Paul says here that we've been buried with Christ in baptism. We've been raised up to a new life. We've been called to get down the road. Horace Bushnell, which was one of the um, a solid thinker a number of years back, he wrote a book called Christian Nurture, in which he spoke ill of the ostrich. Lamentations is interesting. Lamentations has a, re- a reference to the ostrich that the ostrich is 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 basically a horrible a horrible creature out in the wilderness because they lay their eggs and they leave the sun to incubate them. They just wander off. And Horace Bushnell was decrying this practice of basically giving new creation, giving new life, and then leaving it alone to fend for itself. 
And God expects, God expects families to raise up their children. He expects churches to raise up their children. He expects those of us who have become new creatures in Christ to actually live out a new life, to mature and to develop. Paul's use of language is sometimes, it's kind of baiting us because he likes to uh, appeal to appeal to us rhetorically. In, in chapter 3, he begins by saying, well, if you've been raised in Christ, then you ought to do this. And you find that if-then language throughout Paul's letters. He's appealing to us through, through rhetorical device. He's appealing to us very emphatically. In fact, you see it in the dramatic language that he uses. He talks about death and burial, and he talks also about the converse, resurrection, being raised with Christ. He talks about circumcision, which is a very graphic and emphatic term, and he talks also of baptism. We have been circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands, but we have been buried and raised with Christ in baptism. He talks about flesh and sin, but he talks also of glory and manifestation. Paul uses this graphic language to appeal to us in that if-then type of rhetoric. If this has happened, then what's, what are the implications of that? If you've been made a new creature, then how are you living? How are you living that new creaturely life out? He calls us to a life that is different. He calls us to a life that is in Jesus. And He calls us to a life that is specifically not certain things. Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, he writes again at least these three temptations in the early Christian church. And the first was that of moralism. We normally speak of it as legalism, but that I think that, um, that term is, has lost a bit of its uh, a bit of its punch in America, because everybody hates legalism, but there are an awful lot of Christians that love moralism. Everybody recognizes that legalism is bad; it's damaging, it suppresses, and it's cold and dead, and there's no life in it. Everybody recognizes that, but there are an awful lot of well-meaning Christian people who think that that the Christian life is about living a life that's above reproach and it's good enough. We want our kids to be, at the end of the day, at the end of their lives, we want to know that they've been good moral people, that they've minded their manners, that they've been fair, that they've you know, told the truth, and all those things. But this Christian life is more than moralism. It is more, it is something bigger than just legalistic rules that we impose upon ourselves and that we impose upon others. He speaks against it in chapter 2, specifically in verses 16 through 23. He, he goes on talking about, you know, well, don't eat, don't touch, don't do this, don't do that, make sure you do this. And in the end, that moralistic, legal approach to Christian faith is suffocating and it is killing he speaks also against intellectualism. And I, I, I hesitate in using that term because normally when we think of intellectualism, we think, ah, okay, we get a pass from learning. God doesn't care if we learn anything. But you can't 
you can't find that in Paul. Paul talks elsewhere about uh, trying to grasp the knowledge of, of, of Christ and what He's done, the mystery of His redemption, something that can't be grasped, but trying to, bra- to grasp it, to know the love of God which surpasses knowledge. He talks about us knowing the mind of God and knowing the mind and having the mind of Christ. And so this is not, this is, Paul does not speak against intelligence. He speaks against intellectualism. We looked last week at the difference between, just very briefly, the difference between ritual and ritualism. God gives us minds and He calls us to love Him with all of our minds in addition to all of our heart, soul, and strength. But Paul speaks specifically against what he calls vain philosophies, this, this Greek approach, this, this approach that saw that the body is bad and that the mind is good and that salvation is about denying the body and escaping the body and, and tapping into some higher knowledge that others don't know of and that that is redemption. And that ultimately... This body is nothing and meaningless and worthless. But Paul, in his discussion of resurrection life, would have none of that. This body has dignity. This body has been created by God and it will be glorified by God. It has been raised up. Again, think back to Easter. What we celebrate is not some spiritual resurrection. We celebrate the fact that Christ's body was restored to life and glorified. That it was His literal, physical body that came up out of the tomb. He was not some ghost. He was not some disembodied spirit. Paul speaks also against hedonism. That, that, that kind of libertine indulgence of the flesh that there are no rules. I can do whatever I want. And really that stems from the Greek understanding of the body. The body, the flesh, it's bad. Therefore, what you do in the body, what you do out of the flesh, doesn't matter. And therefore, there are no rules. So Paul is calling us not to these things, not to these approaches to to a, a kind of a perverted Christian life, but he's calling us instead to something very specific. Something very specific and something that is that is it's hard to categorize but it's easy to see and what he's calling us to ultimately is to find life in Christ alone christian living is characterized by the life that we found in Christ it is characterized by the declaration that Jesus is lord He is Lord, and therefore all of who I am is under Him. All of who I am, all of who I have been, all of who I ever aspire to be, my hopes, my dreams, my future, my priorities, my intentions, my loyalties, all of it, ambitions, hurts, hang-ups, everything is brought under Him. And I find myself in Him. He is my joy. He is my delight. He is my comfort. He is the reason 
that I do what I do. And my love for others flows out of my love for Him. In fact, His love for others flows through me into the lives of others. Life in Christ alone is found in living a life in full surrender to His way. It's interesting to look at the history of Israel and to flip back through our Old Testaments, which are fortunately still in our Bibles, and still to be read and still to be understood and still to be taught to our children. They're not obsolete. But to look through the Old Testament and recognize that God's chief concern for Israel, His chief concern, the greatest thing He wanted from them, the one thing for which He was looking, was how do they interact with others? How do they behave toward one another? You've heard me say it a multitude of times, and I will say it again. The prophets, in their anger, in their frustration, in their condemnation to Israel, were concerned with, you have exploited others. You have used others. You have made my name a byword, a slanderous word to others. You use people. A life that is found in Christ is a life that is different. It's a life that is different not because it's bound by some set of rules, not because it's elite and better than others, not because it's found some hidden secret agenda, And not because it's lived however we want. But because it's a life that is lived under the Lordship of Jesus. It is life that is found in another person. And it's a life that is lived for other persons. What Paul expects, the implications of this new life in Christ, if you've been raised with Christ then seek those things that are above. He goes on specifically in, uh, in verses 12 through 17 of chapter 3. He goes on to show us what it is that he expects. The implications of this new life is that that new life is to be lived in Christian community. He talks about the body of Christ. And Christ is the head and we find our lives in Him. And he talks about singing songs and hymns together He talks about speaking the word of Christ to one another. Having peace together. Forgiving one another and bearing with one another. Paul's understanding of Christian life is not something that can be lived in isolation or solitude. It is a life that is only found in community. As we interact with others who God has made in His image. And as we bear with one another and care for one another as we live out the life of Christ with one another. We find strength, we find accountability with one another, and we're able to bear each other's burdens. 
He expects us to live this life in Christian community. And He expects us to find the aim of our Christian life to be Christian character. He tells us to set your minds on things that are above. And He's not calling us just to some hopeful, wishful thinking. He's not calling us to, uh, to just you know the power of positive thoughts. He's not calling us to that. He's calling us to, to, to have minds that are governed by Christ. To think as He thinks. Not to put a positive spin on everything, but to see others how He sees them. To perceive the world as He perceives it. And the character to which He calls us is not just some casual self-betterment. Notice again how, how, um, how graphic and emphatic His language is. He, uh, he says, put to death those things that are of the flesh. Kill them. So that the character of Christ, which is seen in peace and forgiveness and kindness and gentleness, those things that the Spirit is able to bring about in our lives, so that that character becomes ours. The character that we see in the life of Jesus becomes the character that others see in our lives. Again, this is not some casual self-betterment. Jesus told the crowds, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. This radical approach to Christian character is more than just trying to be a better you. Paul expects us to find this new life in Christian community for it to be aimed toward Christian character, but for it really to be defined by Christian charity. And I use that word because obviously it goes with the C's, but I use that word because we... It means love, and we have so many warped definitions of love, and we forget the, and we think of charity as being something you do for others, and we think, well, that's not what love is, but that's what love is in the Bible. It's to do something for others. When we speak of the love of God, we speak of it because God has done something for us. He has sent His Son for us. He has intervened in our behalf. He has not left us to ourselves, but He has pursued us hotly. We see His love for Israel for His faithfulness to Israel. We see His love for the church because of what He has done in the church and is doing through the church and for the church. We, think, we speak of God loving us because we recognize He does something for us. He does not sit idly by. And so when we think of love, Christian love as being what God wants to see being produced in us and what defines us, we're not talking about some mushy feeling. We're not talking about some denial of reality and all we have is love. We're talking about actual behavioral, actual giving, self-giving, self-forgetting, self-surrendering love. Caring for others more than we care for ourselves. Doing for others. Behaving in certain way towards others. Bearing 
one another, forgiving one another, living with one another. Paul celebrates the fact that in Christ we have become new creations. Something new has happened. Old things have passed away and the future is before us. The church is a tangible celebration of the fact that God is establishing His kingdom. Jesus is Lord and we have been called into His life to live lives differently. But that new creation is called to live a new life. That which has been buried with Christ in baptism has been called to be raised up with Christ in the living out of our Christian lives and in the living out and the working out of what He has done in our behalf. If you've been raised, then seek those things. Set your mind upon. Fix your gaze on those things that are with Christ. Not thinking like the world. Not thinking like the flesh. What meets my needs? What fixes my problem? What do I like? What do I prefer? But seeking those things that are with Christ. For He is Lord of our lives. And in Him, we have found our new selves. And in Him, as new selves, we are called to live and to grow and to encourage one another and enable one another to do likewise. Let's pray.